You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which together protect 4,581 square miles. Today we're talking about seabirds and plastic. Plastic gets into the ocean mainly through watersheds around the world. It's estimated that about 80% of the plastic in the ocean comes from land-based sources. Some of it may come up come off of ships as well, but the ocean is downhill of everywhere, and too much of it is in the ocean, wrecking havoc on marine ecosystems and food webs. My guest today tackled a piece of the puzzle by exploring the sense of smell with some types of seabirds and exploring the smells emitted by plastics. Could the plastic smell from, like, can this plastic smell like food to seabirds? Well, stay tuned today to find out what we know now about the amazing world of pelagic seabirds. Stick with us. We'll be back with an interview with Dr. Matt Savoca. All right, we're back. You're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. My name is Jennifer Stuck. And today, my guest is Dr. Matt Savoca. He is a Sea Grant Science Policy Fellow working with NOAA and recently completed his Ph.D. in the Graduate Group of Ecology at UC Davis. He studied the sensory basis for why animals may confuse debris for food. So, Matt, I want to welcome you to KWMR. You're live on the air. Thank you, Jenny. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. So let's just dive right in. What is a true seabird? Right. Yeah. So that's a great question. So seabirds are sort of a catch-all term that, you know, humans have created. It's not necessarily a scientific term when you say seabird. Seabirds can include things like pelicans and cormorants and gulls, and some people consider those seabirds. But your question was, what do I consider to be true seabirds? And so the true seabirds are, I would say, birds in the order Procellariformes, which are birds that include albatross and petrels and storm petrels and things like that. These are animals that spend their entire lives out at sea. And many, and because of that, many people will never see them. The only time they come to land, actually, is to breed and rear offspring. So how do, what are some of the adaptations they have for living life on the ocean? Right, yeah. So they have lots of different adaptations for that in particular. They have salt glands to help them remove um, salt from their bodies. Um, they have specialized wings that help them take advantage of the wind currents over the ocean, and so they can fly great distances. I'm talking about thousands of miles over the course of just a couple days, uh, expending very little energy. They have specialized wings to do that. Um, They also have very specialized noses, which we might get into a little later, that help them find food on the open ocean. Those are just some of the many different uh, adaptations that they have for the really unique environment that they uh, are part of. 
So you're talking about the tube-nosed seabirds as the true seabirds, but what are the different other different groups? I think sometimes we forget about uh, the, the different groups in general in terms of the living their life on the sea. Can you just talk a little bit about what the other groups are? The other groups of seabirds are birds that people might consider to be seabirds. Yes. Yeah. So again, there's things like pelicans and cormorants. Those are in the same order. Um, they're fish-eating birds. You might see them along our coast quite frequently. Uh, along the West Coast, um, especially in California, brown pelicans are really common. Brant's cormorants are quite common, as are pelagic cormorants. Uh, other types of seabirds that people might be familiar with are birds in the family Alcidae, and these are birds like murres puffins, things like that. They're small football-shaped birds um, that also dive for small fish or marine invertebrates. And we have a number of those off our coast as well. Um, and then there are other birds that are sort of uh, a little bit more in the middle of whether or not they're seabirds. It's sort of confusing. Things like, let's say, a gull. Like, is a gull a seabird? That's an interesting question. A lot of seabirds, uh, a lot of gulls, rather, uh, hang out on the coast and near the ocean. But some gulls actually are totally inland uh, species. And these are, you know, for example, a uh, California gull breeds inland and uh, comes out sort of near the coast, but doesn't really exist out in the ocean. Uh, whereas other gulls, like a Sabine's gull, which is a beautiful gull that we get migrating off our coast every spring and, uh, every spring and fall, use the ocean extensively. So gulls are, are a little bit tricky and as to whether or not they're seabirds. But a really broad definition of a seabird is any type of bird that uses the sea or the ocean at some point in its life. And if you expand it out to that definition, there's loads of different kinds of seabirds. That can include things like sandpipers, the little shorebirds running around on the beach, things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty broad definition, but I've studied the tr I, what I would call the true seabirds, the tube-nosed seabirds, things like albatross and petrels. All right. That's great. Good description there. I always wonder when I'm at the beach seeing surf scoters, I'm like, hmm, are they a true seabird? Or, you know, they live their life on the ocean. But today we're talking about the tube noses, the ones that fly huge different, different uh, distances across the ocean, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, or right. whatever. Um so, you know, I think sometimes we think about birds and seabirds and shorebirds and, you know, a lot of the things we know about them are things we see when we're at the beach or maybe on a boat. But I was just reflecting when talking, getting ready for the show, how much we know about seabirds. How, how do we know the majority of what we know about birds that spend pretty much almost their entire life at sea except when they come to land to breed? Yeah, that's a great question. And we know most of what we know about seabirds from when they come and visit our uh, realm of the Earth, the terrestrial realm. When they come to shore to breed, and uh, the tube-nosed seabirds, these things like albatross and petrels, they breed on small offshore islands. Um, most famously, you might see some on the island of Hawaii or the islands of Hawaii, for example. And when they do come out to breed on these islands, human beings have studied them extensively for many decades. And over the course of that time, we've studied all different aspects of their ecology, their behavior, their physiology. And that's pretty much how we know a lot of what we know about seabirds today. Seabirds have also been studied at sea, but of course, it's much more hard for us to do so, whereas they're totally at home. We are not out on the open ocean. So in terms of the study that you started um, when you were at UC Davis, it t obviously took uh, knowledge about birds ingesting plastics to think about, well, how do they get these plastics? What was the connection for you that just helped to put together the, the study that we're going to talk about today? Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's a great question. And so it's been pretty well known for some time now that seabirds are some of the 
uh, worst when it comes to actually confusing plastic for food or just eating plastic. I should say that we don't really know exactly why all these animals eat plastic, and that's one of the major mysteries that I wanted to sort of work on as part of my PhD. And there's a really broad-level question there. Are these animals mistaking plastic for food in the first place, or are they eating other animals that mistook plastic for food? We don't have great information on that, but given how frequently we see seabirds with plastic in their stomachs, there's a good chance that lots of seabirds are mistaking plastic for food. And the question that I was really interested in is how are these, or not how, rather, why are these seabirds making this mistake? Um, And I guess in a way, how as well. Because there's lots of research that's been done on uh, what happens to birds after they eat plastic, where in the world they're consuming the most plastic, which species eat plastic, because they don't all eat plastic at the same rate. And so there's lots of those types of questions being asked, and I think those questions are really important to address. But there's very little work done on asking the questions for why animals are confusing plastic for food in the first place. And so that's how I got interested in that question. So where are some of the areas around the global ocean that seabirds tend to eat a lot more plastic? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And so as you mentioned at the top of this show, um, most of our plastic that we find in the ocean uh, does, in fact, come from land. Very, very small amounts of it come from uh, sources at sea, like things that fall off boats, for example, or nets that are discarded and not picked up. A vast majority of that plastic comes from land. And when that plastic uh, runs off land at, on, out to sea, what happens is the large ocean currents, these things known as gyres, G-Y-R-E, which are these large ocean, and I'm talking like humongously large, like continental-sized large ocean currents, collect the plastic and swirl it around into the into different parts of the ocean. This is what creates these plastic garbage patches that people might have heard of. Most famously in the North Pacific, there's a humongous concentration of garbage in the North Pacific. Um, that's been known as the North Pacific Garbage Patch. And there's billions upon billions of plastic fragments there. But what we've, we as a scientific community have discovered in the last decade or so is that other ocean gyres are also contaminated very heavily by these plastics. So we can find lots of plastic in the North Atlantic, the South Atlantic, and the South Pacific. And there's more and more work being done to show that plastics have even reached the uninhabited regions of the ocean, like the Arctic and the Antarctic. So even places where human beings have barely disturbed in terms of direct disturbance, um, we're seeing loads and loads of our plastic trash winding up there. So it's really kind of illustrates how interconnected the ocean is moving water, temperature and, and water moisture around as well. Yeah, that's completely right. And, you know, even though we humans have defined these different oceans like Atlantic versus Pacific versus Indian Oceans, uh, these oceans are all connected by large circulating currents. Um, And these currents can bring plastics from one continental area to a a totally different part of the world. Plastics that have washed off the shore of South America have been found in in New Zealand, for example. Plastics that have been washed off the shore of North America have been found in the Arctic, for example. And so... um, it's really amazing, but you have to consider that the oceans of the world, it's really just one ocean that, uh, that is connected by all these different currents. That's a great promo for World Ocean Day coming up next month, One World Ocean. Um, so tell us, how do you find out how birds may smell their prey? Did you study birds themselves or did you study plastics or how did you go about this study? Right, yeah. So actually, that part of the research, had, luckily, the really cool thing about science is that science builds on itself. And so every scientific study that comes out is based on the foundation of probably decades, if not centuries, of science that came before it. And so similarly with me, actually, when, when we were looking into 
how marine birds might confuse plastic for food, a lot of that was based on what we already knew about how marine birds find food. And so there have been decades of research showing that marine birds use their sense of smell to find food. And a lot of this research started in the 1960s, uh, but with researchers by the name of Betsy Bang and Bernice Wenzel. And they studied um, uh, basically the olfactory or uh, nasal anatomy of a bunch of different types of birds. And what they found were that certain groups of birds had really advanced senses of smell compared to other groups of birds. And those birds that have really good senses of smell are tube-nosed seabirds, which we'll talk more about, but other types of birds like kiwis, for example, those weird flightless birds in New Zealand have great senses of smell, at least anatomically. And so then once you discover that these birds have great senses of smell based off their anatomy, then you can actually look at how that might play into their ecology and their behavior, how they use their sense of smell to get around, and what do they use it for in their environment. And so then starting in the 1970s, other researchers um, started asking those questions. Some research was done at sea in the 1970s that showed that if you put um, scented uh, sponges, basically, sponges that reeked of cod liver oil, which is a nasty fish-smelling flavor, at least it's maybe nasty to us, but not to these birds, that even in complete darkness or thick fog, these tube-nosed birds can orient and find these stinky sponges out at sea. And so behaviorally, in that way, it was shown that, yes, these birds do use smell to find food. And then lots of other work has been done since then to show that certain seabirds are attracted to different compounds, and those compounds that these different birds respond to are related to what they're eating. Um, so, yeah, so lots of work had been done before me to lay this impressive groundwork so that we could do the studies that we'll talk about here today. How far away can birds detect a scent on the ocean? That's a fantastic question. So we know, again, that these birds have fantastic noses. Uh, for compounds that these birds are interested in smelling, they could detect these compounds down into the parts per trillion concentration range. Um, so certain compounds that they're attracted to are compounds uh, related to algaes and krill, krill are these little marine shrimp. And we can smell those compounds down into the parts per million whereas these birds can smell these compounds down in the parts per trillion range. So a million times lower concentration is what these birds are potentially able to detect and use to find food in the ocean. And it's a good question. How far away can these birds use smell to find food? Well, the one answer that I can give you uh, with some degree of certainty is that they can definitely smell food probably before they can see it. And that just has to do with the with laws of optics. You can only see, even if you have the best eye, an eagle eye, no pun intended here, you can only see a certain distance. It's based off the curvature of the earth and refraction of the atmosphere and things like that. Um, but you can smell farther away than you can see. The question is how far away can these birds smell? And there was a study published in 2008 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences which showed that certain species of, <clears throat> of tube-nosed seabirds can detect their prey possibly from over 20 kilometers away. So it's really um, pretty amazing how far these birds can use scent. And what was really interesting, too, uh, there was that these these birds, we know they can detect these smells from potentially dozens of kilometers away, but the, the search grid that the researchers used, they didn't know that birds were going to be able to use odors at this large a scale, so it's possible that they could even use odors at a larger scale um, than that, and we don't know for sure, but it's really far, probably potentially dozens of kilometers or more. That's amazing. So, you know, we've always thought about the incredible migration, or not even a migration, but the the distance that black-footed albatrosses will travel to right. get food for their chicks. And, then, I mean, they'll travel over a 1,000 miles to get food. Yep. So that's probably not by scent. They probably aren't saying, oh, California, 
thousand miles away. That's where the krill is. I mean, or is that just ingrained in their body that fly to the west coast of the United States for food because that's typically where it is? Right. Yeah. So that's a that's a good point because uh, certainly those black-footed albatross that are nesting out on the uh, western Hawaiian islands, uh, they're certainly not smelling the food off the coast of California thousands of miles away. So how do they get there? Um, so animals, when they make navigational decisions about where to go, they're typically using a hierarchy of cues. And, and we do this too, right? So if you imagine a bird, for example, it might use the stars to say, and the bird has been, let's say, genetically ingrained or it's following a bird that knows where it's going. One way or another, it knows, let's say, it has to go north, for example. And it might use the stars at a really broad scale to just travel north generally. But then when it knows that it's going north, it might use different things like odors. And then when it gets closer, visual cues to actually locate specific things, whether it be a patch of forest it wants to land in or uh, something out on the open ocean that it wants to feed on. So these animals use different sensory cues at different spatial scales to make stepwise decisions about how to navigate somewhere, whether it be the coast of California or back to their nesting colony in the Hawaiian Islands. It's just amazing to think about how they figure that all out. And especially with the ocean temperatures changing and currents changing with more fresh water coming in um, from these melting um, icebergs up north. It's just fascinating to me how they find their food and how they decide, make a decision of which way to go. So let's talk a little bit about your study. You were looking to see um, how they may detect the smell of plastic. So how did you set up this study um, for sampling the smells of plastics? Right. Well, before I, I talk about that, well, the one thing that really got us interested in this, and it, it does, in fact, loop into the question that you asked, is, you know, why did we decide to figure out the way plastic smells anyway? It seems sort of like a bizarre question to ask. Um, and the reason being because when we looked at um, a, whole, a huge data set that we created on, uh, the, on different species of tube-nosed seabirds, these are, these are, again, the albatross and petrels, those types of birds, and when we looked at the different species of birds based off of what odor compounds we know they use to find food, we found that those species of birds that use sulfur-based compounds, which are compounds that are created by phytoplankton or algae in the sea, those species of birds that use phytoplankton-derived smells eat lots more plastic than those species that use other compounds to find food. And so that was like a, whoa, that was a weird signal to find in a large data set like that. So what was then the next natural extension of that question was, okay, let's in fact see if after plastic is disposed of in the ocean, does it in fact smell like these algaes and phytoplanktons that produce these sulfur compounds? And if that connection could be made, then it is possible that these birds could actually be using their sense of smell in addition to other senses to mistake plastic for food. All right. And this sulfur compound, again, is put out by um, phytoplankton in the ocean, or is that emitted when krill eats phytoplankton? Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, it's produ- the sulfur smell, called uh, dimethyl sulfide, or DMS for short, is um, produced by marine phytoplankton. And they do produce some of it just naturally, but the amount of DMS that is produced is markedly increased, is increased by quite a significant uh, amount when these phytoplankton are eaten by krill. So in a way, this compound actually acts as an alarm signal where the phytoplankton are emitting a chemical scream of sorts, alerting uh, predators of their predators, so predators of the krill, to come in and eat that krill because then if that happens, then the phytoplankton would be relieved of this grazing pressure. So the DMS, these sulfur compounds, are increased dramatically in phytoplankton that are being eaten by krill. And so 
what one cool connection too now is that the birds that use uh, DMS to find food are eating mostly krill. And what that shows is that basically there's this interesting communication, this chemical communication between these tube-nosed seabirds that use DMS to find food and the algae that are producing that DMS to tell these birds where to find their food. Um, so, yeah, that was a really good point that you brought up. You mean the plankton are talking to the seabirds? Pretty much. I mean, <laughs> in, in a way. And that's, and that's what's so amazing about ecology and ecosystems in general. Like you said earlier, these ecosystems, nothing that we find happens in a vacuum. And each organism is part of a broader community. And there's lots of different relationships. And the closer you look, you realize that there's more relationships than you could have ever imagined between species. And so that was something that we were surprised to find such a strong relationship with, which was or sort of separate research, was that those species of birds that use this sulfur compound to find food are eating almost exclusively krill, which are the organisms that cause the uh, DMS production in the phytoplankton to begin with. That's so incredible. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So, you know, the smell, the dimethyl sulfide, this DMS, is this a smell that we can smell? Because I sure know when I go to the ocean, there's just this incredible sweet smell that just... (sighs) very calming. And it's like, ah, this is where there's so much life. It's just this amazing smell. And I know that uh, Dr. Wallace, Jade Nichols, has been looking a lot about the psychological impacts of the ocean to our brains. But have there been studies, do you know about with uh, DMS with humans? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't know. Specifically, DMS has been studied in humans actually in food products, food related products like beer and wine, for example. Um, Again, they're Uh, plant-derived food products, of course, and so they also produce some DMS. They off-gas some DMS. So what does DMS actually smell like? DMS sort of smells like rotting cabbage. If you're on the beach and you that smell of rotting seaweed, there are other smell, there are other components of that smell, but a large component of that odor is DMS. So if you want to think about what this sulfur odor that some of these birds use to find food actually smells like, just go to the beach, find some rotting seaweed, and give it a whiff, and that's DMS. Now, is that the type of smell that calms people when they uh, think of the ocean? It could be a component of it, but I don't know if it's just that specifically. Yeah, definitely. So that smell part um, that you're talking about with plant derivatives, that kind of goes back to the lab that you worked with to actually analyze the smells. On Well, first of all, let's go back to the study itself. You put some plastic in the ocean. Right. And um, where did you put it out and how did you, like, how long was it out in the ocean for? Right, right. So we put plastic out in the ocean attached to a couple buoys off the coast of California. One was near Bodega Bay in Sonoma County, and one was in Monterey Bay in uh, Monterey County or off the coast of Monterey County. And, um, yeah, the plastic was – we tested multiple different kinds of plastic uh, attached to these couple different buoys. We had the plastic out there for about a month at a time over the course of a couple different summers so that we could replicate it well. And uh, what we did was we then took those plastic samples out of the ocean after about a month or so and uh, each of three different summers, and we brought them into the Mandavi Institute of Food and Wine Science at UC Davis. This is a very advanced chemical lab that's usually used for testing uh, the chemical components of different types of food. And so it was sort of unusual that we were bringing our plastic trash in there. But, again, if you think about it, we were asking a foraging question. Of course, humans weren't the subject, as, of course, they are for most uh, studies done on wine and beer and things like that. But, again, we were asking a foraging question, which is, is it, is it possible that these plastics smell yummy to these birds or smell like, like um, something they might be interested in seeking out? And so it seemed, once you look at it through that lens, it perhaps makes more sense that we went to a food chemical analysis laboratory to actually see the way that these plastics smelled. 
Incredible. What did they think of that when they heard they were going to be bringing in plastics with algae on them? Oh, that was great. I mean, that was probably one of my favorite parts of my whole um, <laughs> my, my whole degree was going in there. Again, most people are there swirling around. They have coffee samples and their wine samples. And of course, I was new there because, you know, I, I spent most of my time working in buildings related to environmental science stuff. And I'd gone into this food food science instrumentation lab. And, they, you know, they'd say, who, who are you? You're, we haven't seen you around here. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so-and-so. And uh, hopefully it's okay for me to put my plastic garbage uh, into your million-dollar instruments. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, people, you know, it was just fun because people had were like, okay, you, now you got me. Now you got me interested. What are you doing? And uh, tell me about it. So it was really kind of fun. It was a good, it was a good connection to uh, – to, to use there. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was fun doing that interdisciplinary type work for that reason. And I learned a lot about wine and beer and food products as well. So it, it was a two-way street for sure. Sounds like you had a very well-rounded education. That's great. <laughs> for folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Dr. Matt Savoka, a marine ecologist, and we're talking about the work that he did in studying plastic and the smell that gets put off by plastic that's been floating in the ocean, which is something that's happening a lot of these days. So does the smell um, increase over time? So you said they were out for about a month. Did you ever have samples that stayed out longer? Right. No. Uh, yeah. So we we did, and we found a sort of leveling off over time. Um, that was actually, uh, yeah, we didn't, that was not particularly the time course, wasn't the particular aim of our study, but that's some, definitely something that can be looked at in, in the future. Because, of course, lots of the plastic that's out at sea is out at sea for years at a time, uh, decades perhaps. So um, and it doesn't break down super well. That's one of the main problems with plastics in the marine environment and in any environment. That's not uh, our homes. And so, uh, yeah, uh, we had not looked at that in super great detail, but, you know, there's always more work to be done. So what were some of the results of the samples that you had? And, and maybe was there any difference between the different types of plastics that you put out there? Yeah, so we tested three different kinds of plastic. We tested the three most common types of floating plastic, which are high and low density polyethylene and polypropylene. And these are plastics that makes up things like water bottles um, or food containers, things like that, very common types of plastic. And we wanted to test floating plastics because, again, if these plastics were giving off these odors that these birds are using to find food, remember, it's not actually the plastic themselves that's giving off that odor. It's the biological life that's growing on the plastics that's producing this odor. And so if, in fact, this odor is indeed produced by phytoplankton that's growing on the plastic, then we need the plastic to be a type of plastic that floats because uh, algaes and uh, phytoplankton are plants and they need sunlight. And so the plastic has to float so that the algae, if it is indeed going to grow on the surface of the plastic, had access to sunlight. So we tested those three types of plastic, the two types of polyethylene and polypropylene, and we did not find differences between the plastics, at least not significant differences. But what was interesting was that on every sample of plastic we tested, and remember this is hundreds of samples of plastic at multiple marine locations over multiple years, um, every sample of plastic uh, was covered in algae and reeked of this uh, stinky sulfur compound, DMS, that many of these seabirds used to find food at concentrations that were well above what we know these birds' lower detection threshold is for this odor. So in theory, these birds could detect these odors. Um, and in fact, the odors were so concentrated, in fact, that it was easy enough for human beings to detect it. So one of the things that I love doing when I go around and give talks is uh, actually bring some stinky marine plastic with me and uh, give people a little smell-o-vision uh, for what this marine plastic actually smells like. 
Excellent idea. I'm going to do that now. Thank you for that. (laughs) So folks tuning in, you're listening to KWMR here in Point Reyes Station, and this is Ocean Currents. Matt, we're going to take a quick little musical break, but we'll come back in a couple minutes and keep talking about the results of the smells on the plastics. Sounds great. Thanks. Stay with us. Right. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock. And with me today on the phone is Dr. Matt Savoka, a marine ecologist. And we're hearing about this fascinating study about the tube-nosed seabirds and their incredible sense of smell and his work in studying the smells that are put off of floating plastics in the ocean. So, Matt, welcome back. You're live on the air again. Hey, thanks, Jenny. Talk about the smells. Were there differences between Monterey Bay and Bodega Bay? I mean, sound, we're all in the same California current ecosystem with upwelling and phytoplankton, but any, why did you do those two areas to, to study the differences? Yeah, so we did those two areas basically because they were going to be easily accessible to us. Those are areas where there are research stations, which we were um, working with at the time, and they allowed us to attach plastic to their buoys. So it's sort of a matter of convenience, but we wanted to do a couple different locations to to hopefully show that um, it didn't really matter where the plastic was out at sea, just that it was out at sea, that it would then acquire this odor because of the biological life that was growing on the plastic itself. And indeed, that's what we found. So to answer your question, no, there were no differences between locations as to the smell on the plastic itself. Have you thought about extending the study to sampling plastic from another part of the ocean ecosystem? I mean, we know that plastic travels through the currents all around the planet, but you know, the productivity in another part of the world ocean might be different than what it is here in terms of the, the phytoplankton settlement, or am I theorizing that wrong? No, you're absolutely right. So along uh, a coast like California, um, it's very, very productive waters. There's lots of lots of uh, biological life that's going on, lots of activity that's going on off the coast of California in the California current, as you mentioned. And that's why many marine animals travel hundreds or thousands of miles to get here to feed. And so there are other areas of the ocean, like those gyres that we were talking about, where there are large aggregations of plastic. Um, And in those gyres, they're what's known as oligotrophic waters. And what oligotrophic means is really depauperate of biological life. So there's not much uh, algae and stuff going on out there. So I think it would be pretty interesting to get samples of plastic from the middle of the ocean, from the middle of those gyres, and um, and test the way that plastic smells, because indeed it might smell differently. Um, But presumably stuff would still grow on that plastic out there. But the question is, what does it smell like? And we'd need a, a whole different setup because you can't, you need, you need to somehow keep the plastics stable mm-hmm. from when you collect them out in the middle of the ocean to then when you analyze them. But it would be a very interesting thing to test, I think. Yeah, to test plastics from the middle of those gyres. So that would be a tough one because you can't just collect random plastic like you just said in terms of like plastic that's floating out there already. You would need to have a study station set up. Yes. So it is possible, perhaps, to do some of this on board a ship, but you need a very specially outfitted ship to do this. Um, And, of course, like you mentioned, you couldn't actually control anything about the plastics you collect. You wouldn't know how long they'd been out there or what type of plastics they were or anything like that. But if you just wanted to ask the question, what do these marine plastics that are out way out in the gyre that are naturally 
are not really naturally, but you know what I mean in the sense they're naturally occurring out there in the environment, as in scientists did not put them out there to study them, what they smell like, I think it would still be an interesting thing to look at, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Now, how about the phytoplankton that grows on the plastic here on the West Coast as it travels across the gyre around, you know, the world ocean? Does that phytoplankton survive as it travels to different latitudes? Hmm. That's a great question, actually. And I think I, I should be a scientist. I, I know, I know. <laughs> and I, yeah, you're, I, you're asking lots of great questions, and that's actually one that I don't know the answer to. Um, yeah, but I'm sure there's lots of uh, people listening who do, and so maybe someone uh, will let you know, and then you can let people know. But I do not know if phytoplankton that – like, I don't know how long phytoplankton lived for, actually, in this sense. Um, that's a really interesting question. Well, that's what – <clears throat> comes up with science, right? Just as you were mentioning earlier, it lends to so many more questions, which helps build this ecology. Yep. So in terms of um, finding at this out, this was fairly cutting edge in terms of we've all one, long wondered, why are they eating plastic? Since we still don't truly know, but now there's this one more piece of the puzzle. They might be smelling it. What's next in terms of helping to figure out this problem? Right. Yeah. So the next thing that we that we're doing now is we're trying to do more work on different animals themselves to introduce odors related to these plastics to different organisms to actually see how they respond behaviorally to these odors. Because the study that we'd been talking about with the birds really only looked at um, a large bird database where uh, different species of birds ate plastic at different rates and whether or not those species of birds used sulfur compounds to find food. And then we chemically tested the plastics that we found off the ocean, uh, in the ocean, or that we put in the ocean ourselves. But so then the next question, or the next part of this question, as far as we see it, is actually testing um, marine animals that eat plastic uh, to the smells of the plastic themselves and seeing how those animals respond behaviorally. But as you mentioned, the broader question is, why are these animals eating plastic? And this is not to say that smell is the reason, period. It's just part of the reason, right? And so when we eat something, human beings, we don't make a decision to eat something just because of the way it looks or the way it smells or whether or not other people are eating it. We make a decision on what to eat because of all those factors and more, you know? And so animals do similar things. So animals don't just choose to eat something because of the way it smells or looks or because other animals are eating it, they make the decision based on all those factors and then some. And so this is just a part of the puzzle, like you said, that hadn't been looked into before. Excellent. So I recently just read um, that there's a discovery about a land-dwelling waxworm that appears to be able to biodegrade plastic bags. And it's somewhat, it was somewhat of a surprise and actually an accident in discovering this. Do you know much about this recent study? Yeah, so this was a cool study that came out just last week um, in Current Biology. And what it showed was these interesting waxworms, like you said. Now, waxworms are little uh, worms that live in beehives, and they actually eat beeswax. Um, so they're really bizarre animals. Uh, human beings don't see them very often, but they're, they're fairly common. Um, and they eat uh, beeswax. And so as a part of their ecology, they have to break down these really strong carbon bonds that are in beeswax. And so uh, what's interesting is that there's also really strong carbon bonds in plastic. That's what plastic basically is. It's uh, carbon monomers that are stacked on top of each other endlessly. And these carbon bonds in plastic are super strong. And that's actually what makes plastic, or one of the things that makes plastic so useful for humans, is that it's a really durable material. But 
because of these strong carbon bonds, it makes plastic really hard to biodegrade. But what this study found was that these caterpillars, since their natural ecology is to eat beeswax and break down these really strong carbon bonds, that in fact these caterpillars can actually eat polyethylene plastic and break down some of those really strong carbon bonds with the juices in their stomach that are usually used to digest beeswax, but they, they, they can actually also be used to digest plastic bags. So what comes in must come out. Did they analyze the excrement of these worms? I mean, part of me thinks about, well, it's maybe it's just plastic coming out and it's just smaller. Right. I mean, did they, did they analyze that? Right. So that was... This is sort of a more morbid part of the study, but one thing that they did, they wanted to, the researchers wanted to make sure that the the, plastic, the worms weren't just chewing up the plastic bags and uh, spitting them out, uh, for example. So they actually, uh, they wanted to make sure that the plastic was actually being chemically degraded by the waxworms themselves. And so what they did was they actually blended up some waxworms, made a little waxworm puree uh, with all of their digestive juices, and spread that out onto the plastic bags and basically took weighed the plastic bags before and after and found a loss of polyethylene in the treatments where they actually put uh, that waxworm puree onto the plastic bags. So what that showed was that something chemically about uh, the digestive juices of that waxworm was chemically breaking down the plastic bags, um, which, again, is sort of a, a morbid part of the study, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, so, Yeah. <laughs> It just shows you one more reason why we really need to protect all types of nature and habitats to discover things like this, these connections about breaking down elements that we have too much of on our planet. So Yeah, it was it was really interesting. And what, what they found, too, is that what came out, like you said, were they just eating up the plastic and pooping out plastic? What came out after they ate the plastic was they actually broke the polyethylene down into ethylene glycol, which we would commonly know as basically a major component of antifreeze. And while antifreeze isn't a nice compound either to be producing, it biodegrades um, in over the course of a couple days to a couple weeks, whereas polyethylene would take potentially hundreds of years or thousands of years to biodegrade. So this is an interesting study we'll have to keep track of, maybe has a promise for helping us with our land habits of producing and using single-use plastic or all types of plastic. But I thought that was just a fascinating study. The first time I heard of actual biodegradation. We know it degrades to smaller pieces of plastic, but biologically, it's pretty amazing. Right. So Matt, we just have another couple minutes here. How has your research affected you personally in terms of your personal habits with plastic? Yeah, you know, it, it actually, it has. I've been trying to be much more um, uh, noticeable. I've tried to really notice about my own uses of plastic. Specifically, I try to, do, I've tried to decrease my use of single-use plastic items because that's really um, where you get into trouble. Because, of course, we're surrounded by plastics every day. We use plastics constantly. I'm talking to you. My phone is plastic, and uh, the computer that I'm looking at right now is, is made largely of plastics, and the pen that I have in my other hand is made largely of plastics. So we can't avoid using plastics, and I don't actually think we should. Plastics are a wonderful material that uh, has produced many amazing things in our society. But to be more mindful of how we use plastics and how we dispose of plastics, I think, makes a big difference. And actually, it's interesting because, of course, we live in uh, California. I was going to say the great state of California because I think it is quite great in that <laughs> there's lots of really wonderful environmental initiatives and laws that have taken place over in California over the last couple of years. Um, we've banned plastic microbeads in cosmetics. 
We have banned the single-use plastic bag in California. And these are items that I and many people use regularly, but it's nice to actually get a little nudge from legislation to say, hey, you know, this is actually bad and we should avoid using these products as much as we possibly can. And so I actually welcome these laws as a way to change my behavior um, from the ground up. That's fantastic, Matt. Thank you so much. Um, You are on Twitter and you also keep a blog. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing those in case people would like to follow and learn more about your work and your ecology interests. Your blog is wonderful. Great stories about marine ecology. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So my blog is my name, Matthew Savoka, ecology.weebly.com forward slash blog. Um, so you can just visit my website. It's matthewsavokaecology.weebly.com. And my Twitter handle is DJ Shearwater. That's D-J-S-H-E-A-R-W-A-T-E-R. Wonderful. Matt, thank you so much for sharing all this work. It's so exciting. I've learned so much through you um, understanding seabird ecology and the this exciting world of smell. So thanks again for sharing it with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny. I really appreciate coming on and talking about you with it. Take care. Have a great afternoon. You too. All right. We were just talking with Matthew Savoca, Dr. Matt Savoca, and he is a NOAA science fellow and a marine ecologist and satisfying a lot of my curiosity about smells. And we have a guest in the studio here that has come in to share something. Yeah. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Hey, um, this is Mia. Um, I work here at KWMR out in the lobby and today listening to your program. And we actually just received a new file from um, Cordell Bank Marine Sanctuary where Jenny works. And today is actually the 100th episode of Ocean Currents. So um, to celebrate that, uh, her workplace um, has made a little surprise segment that they sent us. Um, So we're hoping to play that on the air. Um, And it was coordinated by volunteer Liz Fox. And it's celebrating Jenny's work and celebrating the 100th episode of Ocean Currents. Has this been screened? Is it appropriate it is it is fcc clean (laughs) i can't believe this so um so we'd love to hear that um and um all of your listeners let's wish jenny a happy 100th episode thank you so much this is such a surprise let's listen i haven't heard this yet so you're hearing it just like i am hi this is liz fox at positively ocean where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well This week's story starts right here in your ears. We can trace it back to the studio in Point Reyes Station, where we'll find Ocean Currents radio creator Jennifer Stock. She doesn't know this, but I've been speaking to her colleagues and friends to highlight the work that she herself does to advocate for the ocean. She's hearing this segment for the first time on air. So thank you, Jennifer, and congratulations on your 100th episode of Ocean Currents Radio. Jennifer's job as Education Outreach Coordinator for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary comes with a particular challenge, bringing to life a world that is just remote and inaccessible enough that most of her audience will never experience it firsthand. Six miles offshore, there are no islands or beaches that indicate Cordell Bank is submerged 400 feet below. Without Jennifer's work, the sanctuary would appear as a mere outline on nautical charts. So unless you were at the helm of a vessel, an oceanographer, an experienced diver, or a strawberry anemone, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary would be an idea. It's quite a feat to communicate the value of a place that is essentially invisible and show how we depend on and effect what happens out there. 
So I asked Jennifer's community just how she does it decade after decade. I think it's her passion for the ocean. Jenny loves the ocean. She's incredibly energetic and enthusiastic and by default a happy person. Enthusiasm, and Jenny's got bundles of that. She also has a really quick wit and a bubbling personality that brings hope to dealing with even the hardest topics. And there's more. She has great ideas. I love the questions she asks. Sometimes I'll be involved in a discussion, and then she'll come in with a question. I'm like, that's exactly what I was thinking, or or, I didn't think of that. That's a great question. That was Dan Howard, superintendent of Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, Cleo Vallette, marine artist, David Work, director at Catalina Island Marine Institute, Amy Bilstrom, associate director of learning initiatives at the Oakland Museum of California, and Julie Bursick, team lead, education outreach for NOAA's Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary. It is by far an incomplete list of the hundreds of people with whom Jennifer's worked. Jennifer's colleagues, who frequently become her friends, also admire her creativity, dedication, and cooperation as she tackles huge problems. Daily, Jennifer pours over the minutia and marvels at the grandiosity of the ocean. She hooks her mind around a concept and teases out a storyline and creates curricula and experiences that amplify the message. Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary is an ocean resource worth protecting for generations. Again, Jennifer's former boss, David Work. It's not just an academic exercise. Oh, well, you know, here's let's take some facts and let's try and convey them to people. She's the kind of person that really has that internal passion. And when you've got that, it makes it a lot easier to find those creative ways to get that across to people. Jennifer's a pro who's unafraid of taking on new challenges. Again, here's collaborator and friend Cleo Vallette. She does so many things just to get the word out. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to do this radio show. Let's see what happens. And here we are at 100 episodes, and she's still really enjoying it. And Beyond her creativity, Jennifer's ability to seek and build partnerships have contributed to her success. She collaborates regularly with fishermen, scientists, communities, and policymakers. Here's Jennifer's boss and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary Superintendent Dan Howard. She's just very comfortable working in a partnership situation or as part of a larger group, working towards a common goal. Jennifer's partnerships can last for years, as is in the case of the Oakland Museum of California. Jennifer approached the museum with a small proposal while they were in the process of a lengthy renovation. By the time the work was complete, she had scored space for and developed a permanent exhibit in a subterranean corner of the natural sciences floor. Again, Amy Bellstrom. She's persistent. That is what it will take for us all to be successful in saving the ocean and to do it in a way that really respects where people are coming from. So thank you, Jennifer. I know there are hundreds more people out there who appreciate you and your work. And if the ocean could, it would say thanks, too. But it will probably just oscillate, transfer energy, and, and wave. And that's an example of folks doing right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio, this is Liz Fox. Wow. Well, I'm not really sure how to follow that because... I didn't know that was coming on the air today, and I have tears in my eyes because that was just so incredibly unexpected. Thank you so much, Liz Fox, for 
compiling that very sweet story. I'm just so honored and flattered. And really want to say thank you to everybody that helps support all this work that I can interview people to highlight on the show here on Ocean Currents and on our podcast. I started the show, honestly, with the idea of staying up to date on what's happening with science and, and following my curiosities. And so it's served me quite well personally as well. So thank you, everybody, for listening. This is the 100th episode, the 100th live episode. We've had a couple of reruns here and there. I sprained my ankle last month, and I, I couldn't quite make it to the station. So we had to delay our 100th episode till today. So thanks all for tuning in here and Supporting KWMR, because Ocean Currents would not be here without the KWMR community radio station that really lives on the donations of volunteers and listeners and, and community organizations. So thanks. I do want to share just a few last few things um, to end the show, and I'm just a little lost because that was so overwhelming. Um, Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month, 1 to 2. And we have a podcast. You can go to iTunes or cordellbank.noaa.gov to hear past episodes. And Ocean Currents has a Twitter feed. You can follow at OceanKWMR to get information about this program. And I share supporting links about the people that I interview and other related issues on that Twitter feed. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, or comments, please email me, Bank at noaa.gov or tweet at OceanKWMR. Um, if you're a big supporter of Ocean Currents and appreciate listening to 100 episodes, you can always tip Ocean Currents on the KWMR website to help bring funds to the KWMR radio station that keeps this show on the air as well as hundreds of others. So that's one way to show your thanks at www.kwmr.org. Uh, thanks for listening. Enjoy the bay, ocean, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin. We'll talk to you next month for the 101st episode of Ocean Currents. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thank <laughs> you.